as much as we see today, religion has had a very great share in shaping our lives throughout the history. Even its socio-political involvement and relevance today exemplifies this notion to a very large extent. However, religion as a social institution does not, of course, functions in isolation. The nature of its interactions and influences are, of course, very complex. For instance, if we were to skim through the social history of Indian subcontinent, one would realize how religion has a lineage of its own, especially under the British Empire. And the most interesting aspect of it could be observed in how the British Empire influenced religious communities and their practices, and they often co-opted and promoted them. This, interestingly, allows us to have a greater insight into the workings of the British East India Company, and on the other hand, also suggests that partnerships, no matter in what forms, were essential to perpetuating power, especially in India. This, at times, also led to the curation of new norms and practices, at times within certain communities, at times outside certain communities. And one such demonstration could be seen in the propagation of military culture under the British Raj. However, the involvement of the factor of religion in the military history of the Indian subcontinent is still an evolving field, especially from the subaltern lens. And despite the authority of the British archives, indigenous genres of history do portray an alternative reflection of the workings of the British Raj. Furthering this question of the involvement of religion, religiosity, subsequent cultural practices and their associations with the British authorities. In this episode of Huck, we talk to Dr. Niall Green, Professor of South Asian and Islamic History at UCLA. In his book, Islam and the Army in Colonial India, he has put forth a miraculous account by exploring the cultural world of the Muslim soldiers of colonial India. Dr. Green has engaged with the subaltern history while considering deeply the disparate and conflicting British and Indian concepts of historical discourse, religion in military culture, and Islamic holy rapture and renunciation during a complex transitional period of 1850 to 1930. Drawing upon vernacular hagiographies and oral traditions about four Islamic mystiques in colonial India, which are also, of course, central to the book, Dr. Nile Green explores the multifaceted and malleable nature of quote-unquote barracks Islam. This interview explores and examines such provided stances in the book along with other broader perspectives on the relation of religion and the British Indian Army. Nice. So before we dive into the perspectives of your book, amazingly curated book, I must say, uh, we have a couple of biographical questions specifically for the sake of our audience. So I'll just dive through them first and then we move on to the other perspectives of your book specifically. So Dr. Green, why don't you start with telling us a bit about yourself, your intellectual journey, people who might have influenced you or books that might have influenced you? So, yeah, well, I grew up in, uh, in, in the British Midlands, where there was a, a large, and still is, a large South Asian population, a large South Asian Muslim population as well. And, uh, and my journey towards South Asian history, I suppose, began there, sort of, you know, kind of in, in, in Britain itself. And then 
more specifically, really, on my travels. When I was 17, I wanted to get out of that sort of industrial area and got on a train to, to Istanbul. Unfortunately, I'd already studied uh, at high school some uh, Ottoman history. So really traveling around Istanbul and, and Turkey as a 17-year-old sort of blew my mind, quite frankly. And then over the next few years, I traveled uh, more through bits of the Middle East, back through Turkey and Eastern Turkey and through Egypt and, and Morocco. And then at the age of 20, I ended up in, in India, which had been my destination for, for a while. But, you know, it was kind of a matter of saving up enough money for, for a flight. So when I actually got to, to India, um, because of my earlier travels in the Middle East by that point, what, what uh, captured my imagination, I guess, and in, in a way, I suppose, what seemed more culturally intelligible to me was... Uh, places like Nizamuddin in Delhi, one of the first places I visited, the famous Dargah of the medieval Sufi Nizamuddin earlier. Um, so as I traveled around India that first time at the age of 20, and it was actually, even though I'd gone very much motivated towards sort of studying sort of Hindu traditions, it was actually the presence of, uh, of Islam in South Asia that, that actually captured my imagination. And, uh, and subsequently, as I went on with my other studies. I went on to study Persian and, and realized then that there's this huge corpus of Indo-Persian materials in India. So by the time I, I came to write my PhD um, or research my PhD, by which time I'd spent a lot of time in Pakistan and Iran as well, I, I settled on a, a town, a town city, I guess, uh, uh, by some measure now, uh, called Aurangabad. And, uh, and Aurangabad was the, I suppose, the last capital founded by the Mughals, founded by and named after Aurangzeb. Um, and so I was very fortunate in a way to, to have a, a Mughal imperial capital, so to speak, to myself, that really had never been studied, had been kind of overlooked. And because I'm a historian of, of Islam and Muslims, primarily I'm as a historian of religion, I settled on writing about the uh, three shrines uh, in Aurangabad, three Sufi shrines that had been founded during that brief period in which Aurangabad was the, the Mughal imperial capital. And subsequently, Aurangabad became the first capital of, of Hyderabad state before the capital shifted to, to, to Hyderabad. And then Aurangabad remained a, you know, an important city within uh, the Nizam state right until 1948. And that will move on to this, but that sort of paved the way for my, uh, my own encounter with what I came to call Barak's Islam, because one of the other shrines that uh, uh, I was introduced to in Aurangabad was, uh, was of one of these uh, Indian soldiers, one of these sepahis or, or sepoys, as one uh, came to say in English, um, that was in Aurangabad. So that's, uh, I suppose, approximately how Aurangabad and South Asia and South Asian Muslim traditions entered, uh, entered my life. Right, that, that sounds um, absolutely interesting to hear, which also gets me to um, realizing, because you've already told how you actually came about to do this project, the initial parts of it. So, um, like, what, can you tell us a little bit about the journey of your book, um, The Islam and the Army in Colonial India? Yeah, well, it, it started, as, as I mentioned, during my PhD uh, research when I was, I was living in, in, in Aurangabad. And um, I don't actually have a degree in, in history. My degrees were in sort of uh, Middle Eastern studies, what was then called Oriental studies, so in languages and, uh, and religious studies. And, and much of my own, so let's say, kind of re research, my methods uh, were really shaped by my own 
life history. Uh, the fact that I sort of stumbled into academia really through, through being primarily interested, particularly in the 1990s, I guess, in that sort of age when I guess the internet was around, but it wasn't part of my life. I would travel through the Middle East and, and then South Asia and maybe make one phone call home, perhaps per month. Phone calls were expensive, and uh, you know the internet. This is how I didn't use the internet at all in the 20th century, not till uh, about the year 2000. I think I spent most sent my first email. Um, probably far more worrying about it, having said that. Um, and I was very interested in in the study of of local Islam's as a sort of a body of anthropology and of ethnographic literature on the study of Islam in local context. And that was my real sort of you know interest in in South Asia in studying shrine traditions, pilgrimage traditions, Sufi traditions that, uh, that were very, or at least seemed to me, initially very localized. And when I'd happened upon uh, Aurangabad, as I say, having sort of, you know, kind of traveled by this point and spent a number of years permanently pretty much traveling through the Islamic world, I, I happened upon Aurangabad because at first I thought, okay, this is a small provincial part of, you know, the Deccan, almost South India, kind of beginnings of South India, where I could find these very localized traditions. But what, in the course of my PhD research, living in Aurangabad and studying Urdu there with my Ustad, um, when it's very, uh, I suppose, it initially founded by uh, uh, Sufi migrants from Central Asia. One Shah Musafir, the traveler king who had literally walked all the way from, from Bukhara in what's now Uzbekistan. So, even though I knew what I was finding, I guess I was finding local shrines that had emerged out of this very, uh, this very kind of cosmopolitan imperial moment in Aurangabad. But nonetheless, my, my research interests and my methods were influenced as much by, as I say, by anthropology and ethnography uh, as by history. And one of the other shrines that, you know, I'd spent my evenings wandering around and looking at other places than those I was strictly speaking studying. One of the shrines I was, I, I, uh, was taken to by a local Indian friend was the shrine of someone called Banimiya. And uh, Ban Banimiya shrine, of course, his name means, as Urdu or Hindi listeners will know, it means something like dear by, the, the dear by bridegroom, something like that. Um, and it's kind of you know, a phrase that, that would perhaps be given to kind of naughty young boys, something like that, boisterous boys. Um, and the Shrine of Bandamir was famous locally uh, for, for curing possession. So lots of women, Muslim women, but also Hindu women and women from the tribal communities and the countryside around Aurangabad would come there seeking possession and there'd be sort of these kind of musical cures. That is a, sort of a feature of various Dargas, Sufi shrines around South Asia. But it was only by talking in the evenings with a, a really wonderful gentleman uh, who became a friend of mine called Sadaka. And, and Sadaka um, spoke beautiful, I guess, what would have been called once military Hindustani, you know, kind of very clear, kind of Urdu-inflected Hindi, um, because he, he'd actually worked in the, the Indian Army for many years. And, uh, and he also spoke, you know, kind of very clipped and proper much more correct English than me, I'm sure. And we would have these wonderful conversations every evening. And it was only sort of just by chance, one during one of those conversations he met, he, we were talking one evening over our cups of chai, that he said, well, you know, Banamir was also in the army. And I was, what? No, hang on. But, but he was a, a Sufi, wasn't he? He was a, a Madzub. He was one of these um, God-intoxicated. Madzub, the, the Arabic word that goes into what it means, someone who's 
who's drawn, who's attracted towards God so much that they become, they become almost, you know, to all intent, visible purposes. They become crazy. They become insane. They become puzzled. Right. But they're not there. God intoxicated. They're mad zoops. So he said to me, well, you know, Bandamir was in the army. And I said, no, I had no idea. And this opened up then just over these cups of chai in the evening, um, these conversations about Bandamir's military background. And then bit by bit on subsequent trips to Aurangabad, um, I was introduced to another lineage of the family of the Sajjad and Ashin of the, not the heirs of Bandamir because he had no, no family and no children, but his brother had children and the, the heirs of, of Bandamir's brother and the other sort of claimants to the shrine uh, had actually this Urdu biography, this Urdu hagiography of Bandamir that was published in Hyderabad State in 1922. And it was getting hold of that, that written text from um, the year that Bandamir died, so more or less in his lifetime, and the, the beginnings of his shrine, the foundation of his shrine after his death, that opened up, let's say, my historical as much as sort of anthropological eyes into the into this history. Uh, and then subsequent travels and trips back took me to uh, the shrine in a very small town uh, north of um, north of Hyderabad. In this case, uh, some a very small town called Kazipet, uh, where there was the shrine of of uh, Afzal Shah Biabani, who was the the peer. The the uh, the well the padre as one would say in Urdu from the from the English from the Portuguese padre the kind of the military chaplain of Banimir when he was a soldier and and in turn then I was shown by the uh, the uh, descendants of Banimir the Urdu hagiography that was written of Banimir so with these two key sources then I have these two Urdu hagiographies of the kind I'd already been studying for my for my PhD my first book a bit more in Persian, I guess, uh, for that first book from the Nogal period. Um, but these two hagiographies that are about these, these two Sufi peers. But crucially, and we'll talk more about this, the designation of, of these two figures, Banemir and Afsal Shah Biyabani, as, as it were, the, uh, the spiritual guides, but also protectors, miraculous protectors of the colonial soldiers, of the Sipahis, Sipois, their designation in Urdu was Pir Padri, which, of course, is a, is a compound word. Pir in, in Urdu from the, the Persian, the Pir, the spiritual elder. But Padri, as I already mentioned, from the English and the Portuguese, a Padre, the term for a military chaplain. So it becomes then, this became the first clue then, that there is this distinct Islam that I, I came to call Barat Islam. That this is an Islam formed by the... By the um, in the anthropological sense, I guess, formed by the, the context and the military context of, uh, of life in, in the colonial army, but in this case, actually in the Hyderabad contingent, which was part of Hyderabad state, which, of course, was one of the princely states and therefore at, at a certain remove from, from colonial India and indeed from the colonial Indian army as such. Right. Um, that sounds like an entire like very interesting journey altogether. Also, in addition to this, um, I would really like to know, like, what were the uh, methodological approaches that you specifically took during the course of this book? Well, as, as the book itself took shape, I, I suppose the, the anthropological dimension had uh, had less of a hold. I decided that this was going to be sort of a, a history book and a, and a work of history set in 
in the 19th and in the early 20th century through till about 1930. So shaped by my sources and therefore by the, the lives of these Piyapadaris, the, the religious preceptors of the, uh, the Muslim soldiers of the Hyderabad contingent. So, um, and that took me actually through to another couple of figures as well, including uh, someone called Tajuddin Baba of Nagpur, another former soldier who became a Madzu, um, who uh, lived in Nagpur. He was actually in the, um, the Madras, uh, Madras army, in fact. And then uh, a woman, in fact, called Baba Jana Puna, who, uh, who would actually then be the, the preceptor and indeed the, in some ways the entertainer as well. I'll come on to this role of, of uh, barracks Islam as being about protection, but also about entertainment for the, for the soldiers. Uh, and she died in 1931 in Pune. So that sort of gave me the, the historical confines of my book. So in terms of becoming a, a work of history there, on the one hand, I was sort of in terms of historiographical terms, of course, I was, I was drawn to quite, I suppose, obviously and inevitably, this is subaltern history, quite literally, and perhaps more subaltern history than most works of subaltern history, if only for the fact that these really are quite literally subalterns. These are, uh, as it were, in the language of the time, these are the native officers, literally the, what a subaltern was within, within the army. So they are, uh, in terms of what subaltern, the subaltern studies was trying to do, trying to address the history of these figures who were caught between uh, let's say, indigenous society and the, the demands of, of, of colonization. And of course, the soldiers, Indian soldiers, were, were absolutely that. They were on the one hand true to their own military traditions of their various community backgrounds, whether Sikh, Muslim or Hindu, from various regions of the subcontinent. Uh, they were influential, relatively wealthy, relatively well-paid and pensioned, influential figures in their own largely rural communities where they came from. They're respected figures in their communities. But of course, there are also kind of key figures in, in empire and colonization and conquest. Indian soldiers, of course, helped conquer much of India, particularly after 1857. The Nizam, of course, was given the the, the honour or the dishonour, depending on your perspective, but you know, for him it was an honour, being called our most faithful ally. That was one of his official titles after helping the British in 1857. Indian soldiers, of course, helped in the, the wars in Afghanistan. They were very key in the conquest of Burma, in the Boxer Rebellion in China, in various parts of Africa, in Iraq in World War One, and of course throughout Europe in World War One, where Indian soldiers were military historians, at least, which I'm not, uh, uh, say that the Indian soldiers in World War I were the biggest volunteer army in history. So Indian soldiers are, are caught between the different demands then of, of, of life, particularly before the, the rise of the independence movements and so on, as that catches on after World War I. So in that sense, I'm, I'm, I was drawn in writing this book by subaltern history. But what struck me in particular was that famous phrase of, uh, of Gautry Spivak, can the subaltern speak? And what I was really excited by with these Urdu sources that are written in a kind of, at least one of them, a very colloquial Urdu, kept with, you know, capturing the, the direct, informal Dakini Urdu speech of, of Banamir himself. Um, this was, yes, absolutely the subaltern speak. This is quite literally the voice of a, of a subaltern of various other subalterns, Indian uh, Indian uh, sort of military officers and uh, and indeed plain sepoys, uh, sepoys, sepoys, you know, kind of rank and file soldiers. They can speak, they did speak, their sources are there. But my, uh, I think a point I didn't make strong enough in the book, actually looking back, was that 
was that, you know, that Sir Bolton history does have its sources and it should have its sources. And Sir Bolton history as a school should be doing uh, a lot more than that famous methodological phrase of Sir Bolton studies, reading colonial, which is to say reading English archival sources against the grain. One needn't do that because there are lots and lots of Indian language sources of which, you know, I've been fortunate here in being shown a few by, introduced to a few of these hagiographies by their own Indian custodians in the shrines, the institutions of Indian historical memory that are not the National Archives in Delhi, in the famous libraries of Calcutta or Bombay, etc. They're, they're parts of Indians maintaining their own historical community traditions in writing, in texts, which are, as I say, subaltern voices and subaltern written records. So that was my one, uh, I guess, my historiographical sort of uh, methodology within the book. But more in terms of what I was actually doing was, I suppose, drawing more of my background in, in religious studies and, um, and as a textual scholar. Um, and working with actually the hagiographies, the Urdu materials themselves, and, and asking, well, what kind of vision, not just of, let's say, of military history, what happens in the army, or indeed not just a vision of, of the social history of Indian soldiers, or indeed, you know, the life of the subaltern between, let's say, you know, the Indian village life where they came from and the, you know, the demands of the colonial officer class. Not just as it were then, that's this kind of life, but, but actually seeing how these hagiographies gave us a, a sense of how history works all together. And I think for me, the, the most interesting thing about these texts and this type of, this class of writing altogether in Urdu, in whatever other Indian language it might be, let's say, is it gives us a sense of historical causation, historical agency, how history happens. And what's very key throughout these texts then is the role of the miracle, the karamat in, in Urdu and indeed in Persian and Arabic. The miracle that comes through the piyapadris, comes through the friends of God, the awliya in the Islamic tradition. Um, and that is an intervention in historical process. So one of the things I, I did in the book with using in methodological terms with, was I would uh, try to identify specific historical events such as there's, a, there's a, an uprising, a, a so-called mutiny at the, the barracks in Bodoram, just outside Hyderabad in 1855. And Afsal Shah Biabani then is uh, one of the figures whose hagiography I had, is a sort of a key figure in that. There are also a number of, of clear specific historical incidents, which I could pin down clearly and specifically enough to have both the Urdu account, let's say the Subaltern account, the hagiographical account, the memory as transmitted, and it's important to say that these hagiographies contain many voices. The nature of these hagiographies, and it's a genre that goes back through Persian and Arabic, that it's a specific element of these genres, that they're, they're polyvocal. So these, um, these Urdu texts that actually have the voices of many different people. It's part of the, the, the genre that one would say, there was so, the, the, the sheikh, so and such, sheikh Falan, did this one day, and he is in a sense the proof, he is the testament that so and such said. Except in these texts, it's that um, it'll be sort of dafadar, you know, kind of officer so and such or sepahi so and such said. So there's lots of these voices then of various Indian soldiers and indeed the other devotees as well of uh, the two sheikhs. And, and what these, uh, uh, what I was able to do then was by contrasting and setting aside 
these Urdu accounts are specific historical incidents with the accounts by British figures of the time, whether British officers or um, political officers, because this is Hyderabad state, you know, not part of colonial India uh, as such. Um, and I was able to present the two sides, as it were, of the story that gave this different sense of historical process. One then, a British very mechanistic, one might say Newtonian, one might say Protestant, whatever it might be, but certainly a, a, a notion of, of historical process where, where the miraculous, where divine intervention, where the providence or whatever has no place. This is entirely a, a mechanical, materialistic view of history. It's also the dominant view of history we have when writing South Asian history, whether English or Indian or not. But then when we read it through the tradition itself, through subaltern eyes and indeed through subaltern pens, we have this vision of history when the very events on the battlefield itself are instances and a clear evidence of divine intervention through the miraculous intercession of Banamiya or Afzal Shah or other of these peer padres that are called into to miraculously intervene and save people on the field of battle. So that whole sense of how history works, what are the shaping forces of history, to me was the most important um, aspect of trying to understand what subaltern history is. It's not just, as it were, uh, you know, kind of another version of, of Marxist history. It's not social history in a materialistic, you know, post-Marxist 1950s, 60s, uh, you know, kind of, um, E.P. Thompson kind of way. It's a very different view of history that actually is not just about the lower classes, but it's a very different vision of, of, of historical process. So it was through that methodology, I guess, through religious studies and textual studies uh, method that I tried to read these texts and say, okay, this is a very different way of looking, not just about military history, because I'm not particularly interested in military history, <laughs> but it's a different way of actually, you know, kind of looking at, at how, Hindi, how Indian history works and therefore how we understand this type of history by looking at sources in local languages and particularly sources like these ones I looked at that are published by, you know, really local small town publishers, often privately published. And I think a level of, more generally, I would say, a level of... Um, source material for South Asian historians that is still way, you know, 30 years or more now after 35 years, I guess, after the beginnings of subaltern studies, a sort of a, a, a huge corpus of materials in many languages, of course, South Asian languages, not just Urdu, that in the 19th century with the rise of print, increasing literacy um, as well, that, you know, become really abundant. Um, and as I say, can open up experiential, the sense of the experience of history that, that, you know, we don't have to, as it were, you know, kind of fix into um, a vision of history that is actually alien to its own participants. Right. And like, while you were sort of pinning this entire course and sort of trying to join the dots all together, so were there any sort of limitations that you, you know, might have faced while accessing the archival material or something like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were plenty. I mean, not least linguistic, you know, kind of you know, challenging finding my way through, uh, you know, these, these Urdu sources, and particularly this sort of Deccan Urdu was a, 
was, I suppose, the, 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 the first challenge. And indeed, I mean, some of the plain orthographic matters, you know, these are sort of, you know, lithographs, so, which is to say printed manuscripts to all intents and purposes that were, you know, in small town publishers that are, are not very clear. You know, there, is this a spilled bit of ink or, is, or wax or is this uh, a dot? You know, so there were those plain issues which, which face us all as scholars. And as the older I get and as I become a teacher graduate student of my own, I always try to be frank and honest about those basic challenges that we have to confront, but it shouldn't scare us away from trying to learn to work with these types of materials. The other was the difficulty of, of actually um, of finding materials that, that didn't become part of the colonial archive. To, to the best of my knowledge, neither of the, the source books, the two main hagiographies I used, um, were actually found their way into an Indian library, let alone into... Uh, into, let's say, the, 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 the British Library. The British Library, of course, from inheriting the Indian office collections, uh, has an incredible collection of, of Indian language texts that are woefully underused by, by, by scholars. And the reason it did was because of colonial copyright law, that just as in Britain, Indian publishers were expected and required by law to, uh, to hand in at least one, well, I think that had only three copies, one of which will get sent to London and the others, I think, will be in probably Delhi and Calcutta. But the texts I was looking at, because they're part of Hyderabad state, Hyderabad didn't fall under these uh, colonial copyright laws. So these texts had never found their way elsewhere. So there's the difficulty of finding texts. But again, that was, in a way, for me at least, and if I can sort of encourage uh, other and younger scholars to work along the, the same ways, uh, that was something I'd learned to do, I guess, out of coming out in a sense out of our anthropology, was, was learning to not just say, okay, I'm going to work in the Delhi archives, the British Library, whatever. I'm going out into the communities I'm working with, to their, as it were, the, the community institutions of, 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 of memory, these shrines and their families, and then seeing what private collections and, as it were, non-academic, as, as it were, and non-state institutional collections. And I think that's, you know, and, and that's what sort of opened the doors to cups of chai, you know, which of course itself is an important thing. One's not just dealing with bureaucrats or librarians, one's dealing with, one's befriending, one's learning from people who are part of, you know, the tradition and part of historical memory itself. So those were challenges, but they're also things that I, I learned an enormous amount from rather than just, as I say, kind of sitting in, in, in libraries and, and working out a vision of history that, as many people have explained now in theoretical terms, the dangers of and the restrictions, the limitations of, of creating a vision of, of history through an archive that is already itself constituted through a process of colonization or whatever, you know, Orientalism, whatever wants to frame. So going out, so to speak, into the field, working with communities, their institutes of, institutions of memory, their own texts that have been preserved in private collections, opens up realms of possibility that are certainly more challenging because you don't know if you're going to find anything as a PhD student compared to if you go to National Archives in Delhi or the British Library, you're going to find something. Um, but it may not be, you know, kind of perhaps something as, as revealing or interesting. And indeed something, you know, by definition, you're not going to find something that didn't find its way into those libraries. Uh, like these types of, uh, you know, small town texts. So those are my, I guess, my methodological challenges, but but also the the rewards uh, that came, you know, the things I learned from from the challenges. My private publishing, therefore, with monies quite conceivably monies that are collected either from pilgrims 
in general from uh, the soldiers that pay for the publication of these texts, which give us the, the, the body of evidence that allows us, you know, 100 years later to write about them. So again, even the actual historical evidence is constituted through this process itself of, of Barak's Islam. Um, and the last thing I'll say then about how I came to think about this Barak's Islam, as I say, in this sort of, in this creative tension of, of colonial life, of, of service in the, in the Hyderabad contingent, which then does from the um, early 20th century um, in 1902, the Hyderabad contingent, which had been a specific army within Hyderabad, the Nizam state, does become absorbed into the Indian army, the colonial army at large. Um, and one of the things I'm interested then in is this tension between the ways in which the colonial army both promoted this barracks Islam, it's paying the soldiers, and very importantly, as a really crucial thing of Indian army life, right from the early raising of, of uh, military, military uh, bands by the, by the East India Company, freedom of religion for Indian soldiers has been absolutely crucial. Now, how one wants to explain this, you know, kind of is it perhaps a matter of debate, but, you know, at, at the bottom line, I think it's a pragmatic decision that you know, one can't expect Indian soldiers to, to serve the East India Company or later the Raj if one's suppressing their own religiosity. And of course, as we know, one of the major readings of 1857 rebellion is precisely over this point. And indeed, there's been more recent scholarship on the, for example, on the Velour Rebellion or the so-called Velour Mutiny of soldiers in 1806 and the recent book, well, not that recent, 2007, Men Without Hats, about... Uh, published by James Hoover, is published by Manahar in Delhi, um, is again sort of, you know, looking at the, you know, the importance of, of the, the conflict between soldiers trying to uphold their, their, their customary religious uh, rights and privileges and certain elements of the army trying to, trying to uh, uh, suppress them. So we have on the one hand that this really kind of striking element that the Indian army has freedom of religion long, long before the British army. So in Britain, it's some way into the 19th century before Catholics or Baptists or Unitarians or other Christian minorities allowed to serve in the army. In India, you can serve in the, the Indian army. This is said East Indian companies are in the Raj army, whether you're a Hindu, Muslim, a Sikh or a Catholic or whatever else. So this kind of, as it were, this freedom of religion is perhaps pragmatically necessarily built into Indian military life long before. And yet, as the 19th century goes on, there are two developments. One, of course, is the expectation that Indian soldiers will uphold a certain amount of the prestige of the company or the prestige of the Raj. They have to behave in certain ways. Now, on the one hand, those ways of behavior, of course, are military drill, the new methods of drill, which you know, help the, at least to, if you're not reading the hagiographies, it's the military drill if you're reading kind of standard military history, whether written in 1900 or in 2021, it, it's, it's, you know, methods of military drill which helped the, the company on the battlefield in the 18th century. Uh, but there's also kind of methods of decorum, of course, of uniform and all these kind of ways of dressing and behavior that the, uh, that the uh, British officers of the company or the Raj want Indian soldiers to, to follow. And then this creates a tension then during the festivals, and not least during these 
festivals, which are naturally religious festivals. Indian holidays, like traditional English holidays, were holy days. And among those was Muharram. Now, Muharram, one might say that's a Shia Muslim festival, but throughout much of South Asian history, this was a popular carnival, I suppose is the easiest way to say it in English, that has its Muslim origins, but people of all religions, particularly the lower classes, the subaltern classes, let's say, participate. And it's a carnival that in a sense is a free-for-all. People are drinking toddy, people are drinking bung, there's all sorts of uh, mummers, let's say, mockery kind of statues that still feature some parts of Muharram festivals in South Asia to this day that are mocking all sorts of Indian figures of Indian society, including the mullahs, the very kind of key figure of the, the mockery of the mummers of the kind of sort of statues that are carried around, but also, of course, sometimes Indian, sorry, uh, British uh, Indian army officers as well. So all of this kind of behavior that seems to be lacking decorum is one of the issues that, although the Indian colonial army is necessarily, in terms of its rules, as well as its pragmatics, is upholding, indeed patronizing through its salaries and through the, the rituals and the ceremonies of different ceremony of different uh, regiments that uphold the distinctive traditions of, uh, of, their own, um, of their own religious communities, particularly after 1857, when, um, well, well, indeed, I mean, I think even either side of 1857 for that matter. But on the other hand, there's this sense of, well, some types of religiosity isn't real religion. This is, this is, not in, uh, this is undignified. This is, this, you know, these soldiers are meant to be upholding, wearing their uniforms or even behaving properly off duty, not getting so raucous, and, you know, kind of drugged or indeed drunk. And of course, this is also a problem, it has to be said, for the lower classes of the Indian army who are British as well. There's all kinds of disciplinary action uh, that, is, that is held up against kind of the lower class British soldiers as well, particularly for drunkenness, for misbehavior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so one has then this, this tension that happens. And then the th last thing I'll say is this, this tension then between the role of the army in promoting, but also trying to reform the religiosity of its soldiers, both Indian and British, it has to be said, of its lower class soldiers. And Irish, I should very much add. There's a very large number of Irish soldiers in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the armies of the East Indian Company, especially the Raj. Is that after 1813, the renewal of the East Indian Company's charter, one has for the first time that missionaries are allowed into India. And the, the East India Company army, the army in general, is really keen to keep the Christian missionaries out of the army because I think they're just going to cause trouble. And effectively, that's absolutely what they do do. So these Christian missionaries, Protestant missionaries, of this new evangelical awakening that's been spreading in Britain. And of course, this evangelical awakening is partly concerned with, with sees the East India Company as immoral. This is a really kind of a moral and political critique of what we would now perhaps call liberals or leftists in in British society, in British Parliament, they're saying the East India Company is just trying to loot and rape and pillage India just for money, but it's completely amoral, uh, as it will be seen in those terms of the period of, of terms of morality, rather than, as it were, you know, obviously a Marxist or class-based terminology. So the evangelicals forced the East India Company to allow Christian, Protestant, evangelical missionaries into India. Um, but the company doesn't want them in trying to preach to soldiers. But some of these chaplains, some of these uh, missionaries, get jobs as military chaplains. Officially only as chaplains then to, to the British and Irish soldiers. 
Um, but some of them then start to preach either directly, secretly, against the colonial rules and regulations preached to Indian soldiers. Some of them managed to convert uh, British officers themselves, and those values then in turn, not necessarily trying to convert Indian soldiers to Christianity, but at least have a certain, let's say, what I call, and other scholars have called, a Protestant version of Islam, a notion that, well, if these, if, if, if these soldiers under under my command, so and such British officer is saying are Muslims, then they then Islam is about the Quran, is about scriptures, about rules and regulations, about proper behavior. It's not about carnivals and drinking banglasses and et cetera, et cetera. So I look at a few examples of, of some of these military chaplains and, uh, and evangelical officers and show how, how they start to for their part, to try to promote a, a Protestant vision of religiosity that may not necessarily be trying to convert the soldiers to, to Christianity, but nonetheless has this Protestant, this more, um, I don't know, kind of uh, proper, uh, as will be seen in those terms, uh, version of Islam that actually kind of coincides with the vision of many Muslim reformists in the 20th century as well, who are equally, if not more critical, in, in fact, ultimately, I would say more critical of, uh, of this miraculous and, uh, and shrine-based religiosity than, than the army, the colonial army itself, as I say, which, which ultimately funds, this is this paradox that I'm exploring in the book, that the army ultimately promotes, funds, circulates, pays for this barracks Islam, while at the same time, a number of members of the military, influential officers, critiquing it and, uh, and indeed are trying to reform it away from this religion of the carnivalesque, as I think I describe it at one point in the book, which is a crucial part then, as I said, of what, of what soldiers want from their religion. They want a form of religiosity that gives them these days of carnival, their R&R, as well as their miraculous protection. Right. Um, so... As far as I have understood it, the entire course of the picture that you've very um, intricately painted right here, um, Barak Islam, if we look at it as a sphere in itself, as a public sphere in itself, if I were to term it, and in accordance with that or in relationship with that, while we look at the larger picture or the other um, happenings, the events that were taking place back then in the colonial India, on the other hand, there was also this idea that, you know, the compatibility of Islam with the aims of the colonial army, right? So do you think that in any way, this idea of incompatibility of Islam with the aims of the colonial army in any way might have also contributed to the larger, maybe polarized view being created by the colonizers at that point in time? Let's see. Well, I, I, I think... I mean, I, I can certainly see that, you know, particularly among the concerns of this, you know, the, what was called, and there's a sort of recent scholarly literature on it, isn't it? The, the so-called Wahhabi conspiracies, particularly of the, the 1850s and 60s, part of which were actually seen to be centred in Hyderabad, that gave rise to a whole series of trials. And of course, the, there's one, one, of the, one of the major readings of 1857. Uh, the, the, the Great Rebellion of 1857, was, was that this was, as it were, somehow an inbuilt dimension of, 
of the Muslims who are always going to rebel. And of course, this is one side of, of, uh, of British uh, responses and reports and explanations and attempts to form post-1857, 1858 policy. And of course, of the disbanding ultimately of, uh, of Bahadur Shah Zafar, the dethroning and the, the ending of the, of the Mughal Empire and the establishment of the Raj as such. So there certainly is uh, a reading among certain uh, figures within the military, but I think more particularly among sort of broader commentators uh, in Britain and to some extent in India itself, that, that Islam, let's say, and Muslims are the problem. But I don't think that's a reading that is particular to the army. And I don't think it's, it's, it's a reading, my own understanding, um, is that I don't think that that is a reading that, that was or could have been tenable to army officers, army officials, or even, you know, kind of the most senior level of the, the Raj administration for the very simple reason that, that um, so many tens and over time hundreds of thousands of, of Muslims served in the Indian army, as of course did, you know, kind of, it must be added, hundreds of thousands of, of Hindus. And, and I, I don't have an exact figure, but of course, very large numbers of of Sikhs as well. The Indian colonial army was multi-religious. In the, if it was only born, you know, there were particular recruitment areas, but it was multi-religious. So suppressing Islam as such, or seeing Islam as a problem, is is simply just not going to work for uh, for the for the, the Indian army, the colonial army. Nonetheless, of course, as I already sort of mentioned, and this is part of the the, the tension of Barak's Islam I, that I was interested in exploring. It, that doesn't necessarily mean that, of course, Islam is all sorts of things. So at, at the same point, you know, one could, uh, there were various British officials, many British officials who are trying to suppress this Wahhabi conspiracy, as it was termed. But of course, one has to bear in mind that in the late 19th century, pretty much the same time, a decade or two later after the um, Wahhabi trials in India, um, in Afghanistan, the Amir Abdurrahman, the ruler of Afghanistan and the religious elites of Afghanistan are putting out a whole series of, of texts, some of the very first texts ever published in Afghanistan, critiquing Wahhabis and trying to prevent the spread of Wahhabi Islam into, into Afghanistan as well. So the, the point is that, you know, I don't think it gets us anywhere by, by talking, there's this one thing, Islam, and you're either for it or against it, whether you're a colonizer or whether you're the colonized, whether you're the Amir, the ruler of Afghanistan or, or whoever else you are. Indian Muslims, Afghan Muslims, and I think, you know, kind of at least British administrators and British army officers on the ground in India, if not people commenting from back in the UK, people on the ground, Muslim or not, who interacted with Indian society and with Muslims knew there were various different versions of Islam some of which were perhaps were, were very much directed against uh, uh, the British and against colonization, some which were tried to withdraw from colonial society and live a life of, of separatism from colonial life that would create, uh, enable Muslims to maintain their religious, their legal, their ethical, their intellectual, theological purity aside from colonial life. Um, which, of course, is the Deoband movement, is the largest part of that. And the Deoband movement, of course, is apolitical in this period. It doesn't want to rebel against the British, and it doesn't want to, um, you know, kind of, as it were, rebel against uh, 
the uh, Indian secular state thereafter through to the present day. Uh, and indeed, there are, you know, there are various figures in 1857, uh, including, of course, various soldiers who, uh, who do rebel against the army itself and against the state. And some of them seek exile and find exile and, um, in, uh, in, in Mecca and Medina, as well as elsewhere. And of course, others are executed or imprisoned, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, is that, you know, it doesn't get us anywhere by thinking there's this, there's this one Islam and, and people are, are, um, are at least kind of, uh, I think, sort of influential people within the army. So with, with that in mind, though, as I say, there, there are figures both within military life, the officer, the British officer class, as well as in Indian society more general, Indian Muslim society, who are trying to reform religiosity. And this is, I suppose, um, where for me that the element that the, this, this process, this complex process gets more compli- complex, is the, the role of literacy. Because... Urdu, or what was called back in the day military Hindustani, or simply just Hindustani, through the British Raj and indeed through the the colonial Indian army, Urdu Hindustani becomes is much more promoted as a pan-Indian lingua franca, which is one of the other reasons why I'm always promoting the importance of Urdu, such a neglected language by historians. But virtually any topic you want to look at of colonial Indian life, you will find source materials in Urdu, whether written by Muslims or Sikhs, for whom, because of British colonial policy, Urdu becomes the language of instruction in the Punjab. So we have huge numbers of Sikh texts, texts written by Sikhs in Urdu, uh, as well as, of course, very large numbers of, of, of texts written by Hindus of very different branches of, of the Hindu religions written in Urdu. So Urdu, but it's also the colonial state and the, and the colonial army that is promoting not only Urdu, but literacy in Urdu across India, and not least through soldiers who are speaking Urdu, no matter where they're on service, who are spreading spoken Hindustani through their interactions with locals in the markets of, of the Deccan, you know, where people might be speaking Marathi or, um, or Telugu or further south, you know, kind of uh, in Tamil regions or elsewhere. So... And also, of course, the Indian Army, because it's, it's, it's at the level of to get promotion through the, the ranks of the Indian officer class, one needs literacy in Urdu. So the actual institutions of the army are promoting literacy if you want to rise up and be promoted. And then there's the, 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 the creation then of a military literature in Urdu, both by British officials, which on the one hand is drill manuals, for example, and regulations, which, of course, Indian officers are expected to be able to know themselves uh, in order to fulfill their, of course, their, their, their role as, as officers in command. Um, but then there's also uh, texts that are, or a journal that's founded, as I mentioned, in 1909, the Fauji founded by uh, British Army officials, but many of the uh, contributors are Indian as well as, as British writing in Urdu. So creating a whole literature of, and the Fauji Akbar, no one's worked on it to, to my knowledge, but it has all kinds of stories and short stories and kind of jokes, as well as what one might think of as military issues as well. It's a newspaper, it's a journal for, for uh, soldiers who are all, not just Muslims, you know, for all of the soldiers are reading Urdu. So this, there's this promotion of literacy, which of course also then creates the, a body of, of, uh, of autobiographies 
in Urdu uh, by various uh, soldiers as well, um, that, um, which provide, of course, an important kind of source material, as well as these hagiographies I've looked at. So there's a spread of literacy by the army through the, the army. But on the other hand, of course, it's the spread of literacy in the 19th century that at least a body of secondary scholarship that, that I've been sort of uh, contributed to to varying degree. And, uh, but but there's, a, there's this body of scholarship that has argued that the spread of printing, and I'm thinking particularly of the work of Francis Robinson, very influential, the, the notion of Protestant Islam, um, that essentially with the spread of printing, the spread of literacy and the translation of the Quran into Urdu in the 19th century, because some of the biggest uh, publication ventures and translation ventures in the 19th century are translations of the Quran into Urdu. And this is creating then what different scholars are called a scripturalist Islam or a Protestant Islam that is much more based upon, let's say, Quran and Hadith, a reformist Islam in other ways, that has either little or no place for Sufis. And if it does have place for Sufis and Sheikhs, it doesn't have a place for these Muharram festivals, these carnivals, maybe these miracles, certainly not for the Tawa'if, the dancing girls, dancing women at the shrines, for the music, for the bang, for the use of cannabis, etc. It's a reformist Islam that's been promoted by various indigenous Indian religious actors. Deobandi's most famously said Ahmad Khan through the use of Urdu and through the promotion of a let's say, a more scripturalist or more legalist religiosity, and one that is ultimately, ultimately more critical of these miracles and these sheikhs and these pia padres, these kind of compound barracks Islam holy men, is ultimately more critical than actually of the, the Indian army itself. So in other words, then, the colonial army is spreading literacy, but nonetheless trying to uphold the religiosity and indeed patronize the religiosity of its soldiers. It's important, I suppose, I should note here that on the pay books of the colonial army are a whole series of what are classified in the English materials as, as native chaplains, which is to say Muslim chaplains, these peer padres, these qazis, of whom Afsal Shah Biyabani, one of the figures I, I talked about, was one of those. So these native chaplains might be Muslims, they might be Sikhs, uh, which would be to say um, there will be Sikh grantis, as it were, Sikh priests or Sikh religious figures, or indeed Hindu pandits. And these figures were actually on the payroll of the register. They were part of the colonial army, just in the same way as the colonial army paid for chaplains who were Catholic. Even before a single Catholic was allowed in the British army, there would have been Catholic chaplains uh, in, in India as well as Catholic soldiers. So in that way, you know, kind of the Indian army is, is promoting, it's actually paying for the religiosity of the soldiers, but also paying salaries of actually religious specialists, uh, Muslim sheikhs, Sikh garantis, Hindu pandits, um, uh, uh, in and of itself. So it's not you know, suppressing religiosity. It would have been counterproductive. It couldn't have recruited Indian soldiers if it was doing that. As 1857, what if one makes of those rumours or those facts about the the bullets and the cartridges, as, as, you know, as that episode demonstrated to, to you know, kind of uh, to everyone concerned. And yet, ironically, through the promotion of literacy, through the mechanisms of the army, 
that sort of allowed, at least I argue in the book, an inroad for more reformist Islam coming from Indian Muslim reformists, as well as the critiques of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of Christian evangelicals who were not necessarily trying to convert Indian Muslims in the army, but nonetheless were trying to say, well, if you're going to be Muslim, be a proper Muslim. That's to say, follow your scripture and learn how to read it rather than perhaps follow the, the superstitions the Khurafat, as one would say in Urdu, the language of the Muslim reformists. So, you know, this classifying of Barak's Islam as a religion of superstition, of Khurafat, um, rather than as actually, you know, kind of as it were, as, a, as a, a true, viable, acceptable version of Islam. Right. Um, that in, in itself sounds also complex, but the slashing and stashing that you've done through your book and also the explanation here sounds pretty... Um, curious and interesting to see how the entire uh, picture was eventually being painted altogether, if I were to put this into um, simpler terms altogether. Um, Which also um, gets me to another very major point also in this interview and also in your book. There are two major characters that you uh, also talked about, which are also central to your book, the characters of Afzal Shah and Barnemia. So can you just talk a little bit about their, you know, first-hand accounts, which might have helped in creating a intersectional vision or the approach that you have also taken in your uh, book and the entire subaltern study altogether? Yeah, super. So thank you, Ritika. Yeah, I'm really keen to speak about these two really fascinating figures who, you know, captured my imagination as they evidently captured the imagination and the the devotion of of so many uh, Indian subaltern soldiers uh, a century or century and a half ago. So yes, Afzal Shah Birbani, he he uh, was born into uh, a family of, and I'm, when I say this, I'm sort of drawing, I should suppose, say to a, his, uh, an audience of historians, I'm drawing on here on the, his uh, Urdu autobiography, sorry, his Urdu biography or hagiography that was published in 1913 and, and, and written by um, um, a, a local figure called Mohiyuddin, who was actually a, a barrister um, and more of a reformist figure, which is sort of an interesting point in its own right, that the, the life of this miraculous figure when it comes to be written in the 1910s, is actually already inflected itself uh, by you know this reformist Islam that is coming through you know, literacy and, uh, and the rise of as I say, Islamic reform in the 19th century. But certainly, we 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 know we're told through that that text that Afzal Shah he's born in 1795 in uh, uh, as I said this little small town village called Kazipet around. Uh, where there's the shrine, will be his shrine when he dies in 1856, but also the shrine of his ancestors. And like many of these Indian Muslim religious families, it was a father-to-son profession over the generations. And Afzal Shah then had learned literacy, learned Arabic and Persian, which of course Persian remained the administrative language of Hyderabad state until uh, 1885, uh, and presumably spoke Urdu and I dare say Telugu as well, um, in his in his daily life, but as the uh, Hyderabad contingent, then this, which is the name of this military, uh, this army that's set up within Hyderabad state and the Nizam state, the Hyderabad contingent is founded in 1798. Then, um, which is to say, you know, during the childhood of uh, of, of Afzal Shah, and uh, it has as its uh, its headquarters. Uh, the the, the uh, Bolaram Cantonment, which is uh, 
just outside Hyderabad, and that's founded in 1800. And just near there, there's the cantonment district of Secunderabad, which is still, you know, one of the key residents of the city of Hyderabad to this day. And this is sort of in the, you know, not that far away, you know, kind of uh, from uh, from Kazipet. And over time, then, as during the, as it were, as the the Hyderabad contingent itself is founded, and as Afshal Shah grows up and becomes a uh, um, a an alim, a sort of a religious figure, a Qazi, a local judge, so to speak, in his in, in his uh, local community, and has his name spreads to Hyderabad, and his name also spreads his name and fame spreads to uh, Bolaram, to the uh, to the barracks, and there he starts to gain various followers. And again, it's I won't sort of recap what I've what I've uh, described earlier, but those kind of miraculous services, the miracles that. Uh, that he, that uh, Af, that Afsar Shah is is supplying to his followers, uh, both on the battlefield and also very interestingly during this uh, this rebellion at the uh, at the uh, Bolaram uh, barracks in 1855. So just before 1857, when uh, the Muharram celebrations then that I've said are so important to the soldiers uh, are cancelled by an evangelical Christian officer, Brigadier Colin McKenzie. And this creates then um, um, a rebellion, an uprising by the soldiers then, in which I have, as I say, these kind of two accounts, the British perspective, the officers, British officers' perspective, and this perspective is recorded then in, in Afsal al-Kalamat, the Urdu hagiography of Afsal Shah, in which uh, Afsal Shah himself appears and protects the soldiers uh, in the midst of the, uh, of the putting down of the... Uh, of the uh, of the of the rebellion, so, and there are all of these uh, other services that he supplies as a Qazi, particularly as I mentioned, these more literate services of uh, to do with the you know the kind of the, the more literate sides, because most soldiers, of course, are, are, are not literate at, uh, at this point. Um, and then one of his followers, who is a soldier, one of his soldier followers is someone called Muhammad Azam Khan, and he's actually from a family that again, father to son, have been. Uh, soldiers uh, in the the British Army and presumably in armies before that for generation to generation. We're told in in his Urdu hagiography, published in 1921, and uh, and this figure Muhammad Azam Khan joins the Hyderabad contingent, but he's from actually sorry, it's his father who joins the Hyderabad contingent, uh, migrating from Punjab. So Muhammad Azam Khan, like so many of these soldiers, and reflecting what I've talked about about the circulation of. Of, of soldiers across the uh, across South Asia is a Punjabi Muslim, as were so many of the the soldiers, along with uh, Punjabi Sikhs and 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 uh, uh, Beng, uh, Hindus from Bengal, major parts of the uh, the re- recruits of the the colonial army, indeed of the Hyderabad contingent. Now, at some point during uh, during his service, then, and this is one of the things that really interests me about the poignancy, I think, of subaltern life. Muhammad Azam Khan goes through perhaps what we nowadays call um, what we call post-traumatic disorder, something like that. And indeed, in the 19th century, such was, of course, at any point in history, the, the, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, the moral uh, shocks and conflicts of violence, of military violence, it's such that British soldiers, as well as Indian soldiers, suffer 
trauma, as we would say nowadays. Psychological trauma, as we would say it nowadays. Now, and of course, it's in the 19th century that psychology is taking shape in a pre-Freudian way, but it's taking shape in, in British medical circles. And in India then, a whole series of, of uh, asylums, as they're called, are founded for British officers. Um, the most famous being the Diolali Sanatorium in what's now Maharashtra in the Bombay contingency, which gives us the British phrase in English still to this day. I don't know if you still use the Indian English, to go do lali, to go crazy. And this were the asylums for, for, for British soldiers. But there are also a whole series of, uh, established by the 1858 Asylums Act in India, a whole series of what were called natives-only asylums, which is say uh, asylums, mental hospitals, 25 of them were founded all over India. And a number of them were founded uh, for Indian soldiers as well. And Muhammad Azam Khan, and this is where I was trying to draw between the hagiography and the hagiographical account and the records of, of the particular asylum uh, or the Pagal Khana, it was, as it was plainly called in, in, in Urdu, the, the madhouse, literally, um, where, he was, uh, where he was interned. And it's at this point then where we start to have this really fascinating divergence then between the colonial medical materialist accounts that Muhammad Azam Khan has suffered what we would now call trauma or what was called at the time either uh, what would be called insanity in English and what's understood in the Urdu accounts and indeed by what would have been no doubt the oral accounts that recorded by from the mouths of his followers in, the, in his hagiography that he, he, he goes through not so much a psychological trauma as a spiritual elevation of jazb and jazb, that Urdu word from the Arabic, attraction towards God. And he becomes what's called in Urdu then, a, a, from the Arabic, a madzub, someone who is attracted to God, a holy fool, as one might say in English. One of these figures that are very much part of the religious landscape of, of South Asia for centuries, and indeed of other regions as well. So it's because in a... Uh, in the, let's say, the, the, in Indian Muslim religious terms, and indeed of wider Indian religious terms, he's a fakir, plain and simple. He's a madzub. Uh, he's wandering around naked. This is attested by a fascinating photograph, a devotional photograph from the later years of his life. So quite an early Indian photograph, an early photograph in Hyderabad State showing him absolutely naked. Um, and uh, also in the Urdu text itself. He's always described as berahne. He's always um, wandering around naked around the city. And of course, this is precisely the kind of thing for the, for the Indian army officers. This is like, we don't want a former, former soldier, one of ours. We want them to be in uniform, not wandering around naked. And indeed, in the hagiography, he wanders into the cantonment areas. He's wandering around the shops. And another of these uh, naked madzubs, a former soldier, Tajuddin, in his hagiography, Nagpur, wanders into the colonial memsibes. Um, tennis court, so even more shocking. So both of these figures are put into the Pagal Khana, put into the colonial asylum. And it's the asylum records is one of the sources I read. But again, when we look through the Subaltan sources, through the Urdu sources, in, in Muhammad Azam Khan's case, through the, uh, through the hagiography Azam al-Kanamat, we get this very different picture then, that this isn't madness, this isn't um, 
this isn't be adab, this isn't be adabi, this isn't you know kind of bad behavior. This is the, the, the behavior of a madzub, someone who is so attracted and drawn to God that neither the rules of the British, neither the rules of the army, nor indeed the rules of Sharia don't apply to madzubs. He's so absorbed in God, he's got a free pass. So, and this then, Muhammad Azam Khan then, his, as it were, his given name and his military name, and so to speak, his, his family name then, he then becomes Banimiya. He's then this, the dear bridegroom or the naughty boy. That's his devotional name that is given the name in, in, um, in his hagiography. And at this point then, if, if you and our listeners who have made it this far will, uh, will bear with us, I'd like to read a translations of a couple of anecdotes from Azam al-Karamat to let those texts <clears throat> speak for themselves, or at least speak through uh, my English translation. And, uh, and this anecdotal style then is very much a part of these hagiographies, both in Urdu and in earlier texts as well, that are really important because I teach a class at UCLA on hagiography, hagiography and social history, Muslim hagiographies and social history. Because, you know, these texts are so important, whether it's for subaltern history or whether for pre-colonial periods, because they have so many voices in them. They're polyvocal, as I say. And many people, many ordinary people, soldiers or otherwise, villagers, tribes, people who wouldn't enter the historical record, that weren't literate, that weren't written about in court chronicles or state documents, find not only their way, but also their voices are recorded. Um, in, in these texts. So they're really kind of major sources, not just for religious life, but for, as I say, subaltern or ordinary social history in general. So anecdote six from Afsal al-Kanamat, published in 1921. This deals with the escape of Bannemir from, uh, from the colonial asylum or from the Pagal Khana, as it's called here in the text. So one day, with the help of the Bazaar master, a British official, the cantonment magistrate, another British official, the cantonment magistrate of Aurangabad, had Banamir taken to the asylum by bullock cart by some other soldiers of the regiment. They took Banamir to the house of the superintendent of the asylum and left him there. But after sunset, a number of people saw Banamir entering the shop of an opium dealer in the regimental cantonment bazaar, back in Aurangabad. The police immediately informed the bazaar master what had happened. Then in the morning, the bazaar master came and asked the soldiers why they hadn't followed their orders and deposited their priest, their peer padri, with the superintendent of the asylum. But sir, the soldiers replied, we did take him to the superintendent's house. So in response, the bazaar master ordered them to again take Banamir by cart and deliver him again into the care of the superintendent of the asylum and this time bring back a receipt. So the soldiers then saw Banamir in front of the cart and so they carried him away back to the asylum where they delivered him again to the superintendent's house in Jalna and handed him over and this time took a written receipt. Yet, the next morning again, all the people saw Banamir back in the same bazaar and in the same opium shop. And so once again, they informed the bazaar master. The bazaar master, his British official, was amazed because he had the receipt of Banamir's arrival at the asylum. 
So he set off himself to see the truth of the matter. And then he saw Banamir there in the bazaar with his own eyes. And seeing him, he explained, Undoubtedly, you are a great Sufi padre. Beshak ab bahubbara pia padre Then the bazaar master lifted his hat in respect to Salam Banamir. Sometimes go to Banamir and pay his, pay his respects, make his adab. So that's the end of that anecdote. And what we see here, I think, clearly is this story that the colonial state might try to imprison Banamir in the asylum, but miraculously he can escape again, again, and again. And so much so that even the British official, the bazaar master, ends up at the end of the anecdote acknowledging the miraculous power, the status of Banamir. You are a great Sufi padre. And again, it's this terminology of, the, of what I call Barak's Islam. It's a peer padre. It's a type of Muslim figure that wouldn't exist without the colonial army, because this is, of course, a, an Urdu version of the Anglo-Portuguese term padre for a Christian, uh, Christian chaplain. I'll read another somewhat shorter anecdote, this time of Banamir promoting uh, a, a, a former fellow soldier in the army. So here we go. Anecdote 15. Ghulam Hussein Khan was a private in the first cavalry of the Hyderabad contingent stationed in the cantonment at Aurangabad. One day he was in the cavalry bazaar, the Sapahi bazaar in Aurangabad, and His Holiness Banamir passed in front of him and called out, Hey, officer, Ari Dafadar, hey, officer, where are you going? Ghulam Hussein turned and then respectfully, but in surprise, said to him, I'm only a sepoy, I'm only sepahi, I'm not an officer, I'm not a Dafadar. But His Holiness Banamir in turn replied, No, Ab Dafadar, you are, you are an officer. Later that day, Ghulam Hussein Khan, the soldier, rode on his new horse before Major Colonel Ross. Now, I'll just interrupt the text here to add that this is one of these names that comes up in Urdu, uh, Major Ras Sahib, and this is cross-checking with the British and the, the official records, or the Hyderabad contingent records, I found out this was a figure called Colonel Harry Ross, who was indeed, at the time, the most senior British officer, based actually in, in Adma Ahmadnagar at the... Uh, at the uh, the cantonment there in what was then the Bombay presidency. So back to the, the, uh, the Urdu text. So His Holiness, Banamir replies, no, you are an officer. Then later that day, Ghulam Hussein Khan rode on his new horse before Major Colonel Ross. And Major Ross saw Ghulam Hussein and said, who is that sepoy? And the cavalry officer replied, oh, just another sepoy, sir. But Major Colonel Ross said, that person has the qualifications to be an officer. So I'm going to appoint him as an officer. And so later that day, Ghulam Hussein Khan was promoted to the rank of officer, to the rank of Dafadar. Later, he went back before His Holiness Banamir to pay his respects by kissing his feet, by performing the Qadam Busi. So to end the anecdote there, what we see here again is working within the confines of the structures of military life. It's Banamir, the... Pagal, the insane, or for his followers, the Madzub, the God-intoxicated former soldier, who is able to promote 
a soldier through the official ranks of the army. And indeed, it's Banamir, then, the purpose of the story, who is influencing the mind of this major Harry Ross or Colonel Harry Ross to actually promote then this soldier, to recognize him and actually promote him through the officer ranks, which, of course, then creates uh, not only a rise in prestige, but also a rise in salary. And indeed, then uh, he goes and the soldier then or the officer now goes and pays his respects back to Bandamir and perhaps makes a donation, makes a nazar as is part of the, the adab, the etiquette of shrine visitation and, and gratitude for miracles. Right. I mean, this actually proves in a way what might have interested you in um, the, these two central figures and putting them onto one of the other cores of the book. So, yeah, I mean, that adds up. This also actually in the entire course of um, the anecdotes that you presented, there's this parallel question that was looming in my head, although not directly associated, but sort of indirectly associated, let's say. I was looking at how these religious beliefs altogether and practices were being transformed by both indigenous actions and the sort of initiatives that were taken by the colonizers altogether that might be or probably shaping the way we look at it at present or maybe back then. So do you think all of this together might have also sort of fostered a pressurizing or a sort of a pressure, um, let's say, which might have had any effect on the sociocultural position of these boys? Yeah, well, that's a that's a yeah fascinating question, Ritika. Thank you. So, uh, well, I think when I wrote this book, uh, which is fifteen years ago now, and in the conclusions I wrote then, um, I and a few articles I, I wrote as a follow up. I think I was very um, decisive, and I think conclusive and adamant that that yes, between let's say. Um, Protestant British notions of true religion that had influenced, of course, the whole literature on Hindu reform, on Sikh reform, as well as Islamic reformism in, in colonial South Asia, that, that these sort of models of true religion, whether you're you know, Muslim, Hindu, or Christian, uh, or Sikh, or whatever, they did, on the one hand, shape, or let's say ring the death knell for this Barak's Islam, as indeed did... Um, did the Indian Muslim reformist groups as well. And it's certainly the case, I think I've been told, that a group like the Tabliki Jama'at, which comes out of the Deoband reform group, and I'm told that uh, in Pakistan, at least, in the, the post-colonial army, the Tabliki Jama'at has been very influential in promoting, let's say, reformist Islam among uh, post-colonial Indian soldiers. So I think my sense was, when I finished the book, that yes, this is a form of religiosity that, that's gone through or at least had already disappeared by the end of the colonial period, let's say, by 1940-47. But in some ways, um, I wonder whether that is entirely the case now. I think certainly, on, on the one hand, I mean, the army is interesting because whether in, in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, I mean, the, the post-colonial armies, institutionally and regimentally, in terms of regimental culture, military culture, preserve much of colonial culture in a way that hasn't happened in other elements of post-colonial Indian society. Um, 
and no doubt elements of a barracks Islam have continued, uh, I suspect, in, in, and one of the ways in which that, and I think at least looking across the, the, the Indian 1947 border into Pakistan, is that the shrine of Zindapir outside um, Rawalpindi as a Sufi, another miracle worker who was actually um, had many followers in the, in the Pakistani army who became uh, promoters of his shrine and his cult and patrons, etc. So I think perhaps my definitive view uh, that I ended the book fits much more neatly historiographically, let's say, with the, the literature of, you know, what happens with colonization, what happens with Islamic reform. But I suspect probably other researchers who I hope will be perhaps encouraged if they've managed to listen this far in, the, in our conversation. Um, I hope other re- re- researchers might, might you know, uh, be able to uncover a less definitive end uh, to, to, to this forms of religiosity and how Barak's Islam and indeed Barak's Hinduism or Barak's Sikhism have continued uh, after the, you know, 1930 when I cut off my book and indeed after 1947 have continued in a transformative way um, which my story is about. It's about transformations. Um, but, but, um, and I suspect that even the miraculous dimension of religiosity is still to this day. Certainly we have a really hugely outside of colonial South Asia, but um, we have a, a really important, um, for some people no doubt troubling, um, hagiography or martyrology that was actually written in Afghanistan in Arabic but translated into many different languages, many, many different languages after it was written in the late uh, mid-1980s by the Palestinian, Palestinian uh, Mujahid fighting against the, the Soviets in Afghanistan, Abdul Azam. And that's a text called Ayatul Rahman fi Jihad al-Afghan, the signs of the merciful God in the Afghan Jihad. And that's a story of a whole series of battlefield miracles um, granted to Muslim soldiers fighting, in this case, against the what we might think of another colonial army, that of the Soviet uh, empire, so to speak, which, of course, is very much an anti-religious uh, empire. So um, Abdullah Azam was an Islamist. He was a Mujahid, politically troubling, no doubt, for many people. But nonetheless, my point being that right through to the 1980s, and indeed it's a book that's been translated, is widely available in many languages, including online to this day, miracles still very much happen on the battlefield. And I've no doubt that that is a part of the demands, the existential, spiritual, psychological demands of, 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 of fighting um, in any sphere and in any religion, Christian, Muslim, Hindu or otherwise, which is why military chaplains are still much a part of American or British military life, as indeed of uh, other cultures of the world. So I think there probably has been various types of of reform, no doubt. But I think such are the existential demands of of what soldiers have to do for a living that I think religiosity will always stay within military life, even if it gets... uh, as it were, if it disappears from many other more comfortable uh, spheres of of human experience, whether in South Asia or elsewhere. Right. I totally, totally agree to that. Um, Also, I'm afraid that we have reached the near end of this interview. So I'll just have one concluding question to you, Dr. Green. 
Um, so like what other projects are you currently working on, which we might keep an eye on because this entire intriguing conversation has been a great um, handoff to other projects that we can look up to. So like, would you want to say something about them? Just share something with our audience? Yeah, sure. Well, I recently uh, published a, a book in uh, that series, Oxford, Very Short Introductions, which I, I know is certainly uh, available in, 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 uh, in India and across South Asia. And that's a, a very short introduction to global Islam. And here, as a, uh, I try to create it in this short book, very short book, <laughs> uh, I tried to um, create an analytical distinction between what I would call world Islam, all those forms of local religiosity, across the Islamic world, of which Barak's Islam was one of many regional uh, examples, and a distinction between Barak's Islam and, and global Islam, which I define as the forms of Islam which have uh, uh, emerged and spread uh, during the time period and through the mechanisms of modern globalization, which I would, I would define as being from 1870, the coming of global railroad, steamship, telegraph, communication networks, and uh, 2020, when I ended my book and with, the, uh, with, I guess, the end of the more recent phase of neoliberal globalization. So uh, it's a sort of a, yeah, a survey, a tried, an attempt to understand uh, also, actually, the, um, the very large role of South Asia. One of the things I tried to understand in that book is how it is that South Asian uh, Muslim organizations have had uh, uh, perhaps an, an outside or certainly a very prominent role in global Islam perhaps more than uh, perhaps many people, perhaps at least more than people who think that Islam is all about the Middle East, might be surprised. And I try to understand some of the roles in that, which certainly have, a, uh, have their origins in colonial history and, uh, and in the, um, yeah, the various elements of that. So that's my most uh, recent book, Global Islam, a very short introduction. Right. Um, that, is, that is something that we will really look forward to, and especially the young audience. Um, would, most, would absolutely be listening to this entire conversation. And thank you so much, Dr. Green, for coming to India Colonized and having this amazing and intriguing conversation. I might have a couple of homework questions to do when I go back from here. So yes, um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on board with us. Well, thank you so much, Ritika, and to the whole team for in inviting me. It's been really wonderful to revisit these fascinating stories and at least to me fascinating and uh, fascinating source materials and, uh, and I hope in some way to encourage other scholars to to dig into this you know kind of incredibly rich uh, archive or, or indeed published set of Urdu materials uh, in on whatever subject historians of colonial India are working on. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning into this conversation. We really hope you enjoyed this and if you did please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. We have a series of amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the issues of contemporary relevance. Do check out our website, www.ergostudios.com for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of contemporary relevance. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.